Funding for this edition of Think Tank with Steve Adubato has been provided by Kane University, where cougars climb higher. PSEG Foundation, Newark Board of Education, the Northward Center, the Healthcare Foundation of New Jersey, Choose New Jersey, the Terrell Fund, supporting reimagined childcare, RWJ Barnabas Health, let's be healthy together, and by PSENG, committed to providing safe, reliable energy now and in the future. Promotional support provided by NJ.com, keeping communities informed and connected. And by New Jersey Globe. Welcome to a very special edition of Think Tank right here on News 12 Plus. We're joined by Dr. Michael Salvatore, Senior Vice President of Administration at Kane University, our higher ed partner and also co-host of the Kane University podcast, Urban Impact. Good to see you, doctor. Great to see you. We're about to uh, see an interview that we did with uh, Newark Mayor Raz Baraka. But put in perspective Kane University's commitment to urban matters, if you will, and also the John S. Watson Institute. Tell everyone what the Watson Institute is. Sure, uh, it's a public policy institute that works with the urban mayors of New Jersey uh, to identify issues that they particularly have and kind of work in a synergetic way to find solutions. Kane University has a designation as an urban research higher ed institution. What is it and why is it so important, Doctor? Kane's current legislative designation is as an urban research university in New Jersey. Uh, that's critical because it, it helps focus our research agenda, particularly in urban communities, where we're uh, actually saying a calling to the world, saying, listen, we're not going to just evaluate uh, your systems, but we want to provide the most unique researchers that exist. Uh, and those are students that live in those communities that are passionate about the fabric of their uh, upbringing and uh, we're we're this this designation is about a a calling to the world that hey we exist we're here and if you want some support from a really diverse perspective of researchers we got you. Real quick, uh, plug the Urban Impact uh, podcast that you do in cooperation with your colleague Barbara George Johnson. Plug that real quick. Sure, we we just uh, launched our our podcast here at Kane University called Urban Impact and uh, we're exploring a a uh, variety of issues from uh, invasive species to sustainability, of course, to education uh, and beyond. Uh, I want to thank Dr. Michael Salvatore, the team at uh, Kane University, Dr. Lamont Repolette, the president, and this is part of our Urban Matters uh, initiative. And this is special edition of Think Tank. Check it out. Hi, everyone. I'm Steve Adubato. Um, we kick off the program and we are honored that he's with us again, the Honorable Mayor of the great city of North Brick City, Roz Baraka. Mr. Mayor, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Glad to be here with you. Always. Uh, Mayor, let's jump right into this. The issue of crime, particularly violent crime, we've been doing a lot of programming around that. The statistics in Newark as it relates to violent crime are down. First of all, what are those numbers, particularly around homicides, and why are those numbers what they are? Please. 
Well, um, just in in context, the numbers in, in Newark are probably uh, now finding wood to knock on here are uh, probably uh, as low as they were since John F. Kennedy was the president of the United States. Uh, so in actual numbers, when I took office, we were over 100. In fact, crime had increased four years straight in a row, and we were over 100. Last year, we had 50. 100 homicides. 100 homicides last right. year. Last year, we ended the year with 50. Uh, we, at this present moment, are just one up from where we were last year. So God willing and things continuing the way they continue, we'll, we'll probably hold strong, uh, uh, you know, with a lot of work and a lot of prayer. Um, but, you know, but Mayor, not, not... So many, I'm sorry for interrupting, but in so many urban communities, that isn't the fact. The numbers, forget about the numbers, in, in terms of people's lives, there is more violent crime, or at least there's a perception of more violent crime. We're right across the river, New York City, other places, Chicago. What is different in Newark? Well, I think that the collaboration between uh, police and the kind of ecosystem we created that involves the police of like kind of CVI organizations that they call it nationally, that the White House has called it and other national organizations, community violence intervention groups that are, you know, more than just guys going to talk to people to stop them from shooting each other. And I think at one level, that's what people think it is. And it's much more than that. It's hospital-based intervention that involves uh, you know, hospital professionals, it's uh, social workers and uh, job developers and counseling and outreach workers and high-risk intervention teams that are out there uh, that have to be funded to do this kind of work, uh, art and art therapy and all kind of stuff that we do engage. Right. Uh, and we work alongside of the police department, not, you know, in spite of the police department, but with the police department. Uh, and the police themselves, uh, have changed the way they police. And uh, I think the constitutional-based policing, the consent decree and all of that has focused us on more intelligence-based policing, uh, more focused deterrent. So we actually focus on areas and people who are committing crimes and not just throwing a wide net out there, hoping we catch somebody, which was the broken windows uh, thing before, which I think led to a broken uh, strategy that, that forced us into this consent decree. Real quick, the consent decree the mayor is talking about is the federal government stepping in after a disproportionate number of um, um, of incidents between the police and the community of Newark disproportionately affecting African-Americans and Hispanics in the city. The numbers are off because something was off. The federal government stepped in. That's where that would dis dis uh, the decree came from, the consent decree. But also in New York City, way back when Mayor Giuliani was the mayor, um, the broken windows theory was you stop every minor crime, if you will, before it gets worse. That being said, Mayor, shift gears if you could with us. The mayor of New York City, Mayor Adams, not Mayor Giuliani, the mayor now, is saying that the Biden administration is really sh giving a shaft to the city and urban communities across this country by their failure, according to Mayor Adams in New York City, to deal with the immigration crisis. And so many immigrants are coming to New York. They can't handle it. Where is Newark fit into that only across the river from New York City? So we get a we we thought we were going to get some of those buses by God's grace it didn't happen uh, we prepared ourselves for it but we do get a byproduct of folks who uh, migrate from New York into Newark I mean once they come into the city uh, you know into the proximity they, they they're free they can go where people can go wherever they want to go uh, and so they want we get families here in the city so our 
social service infrastructure has to take care of it. And because, you know, you have to be a citizen for a certain amount of time, they can't get county welfare, county services, they can't get any of those things. So, you know, we basically have to provide for them with the best that we can, you know, even helping people find jobs and all kinds of other things, housing and opportunity, we, we have to do that. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I, I would, would agree with Mayor Adams in a sense that there needs to be a, a federal strategy to this. This can't be left to municipalities to deal with on their own. It's not fair. Uh, it's, it's uh, you know, not sustainable and, and certainly not tenable. You know what I mean? It's, it's untenable, right? So at the, at the end of the day, uh, without help, you, you're going to drown at some point. I mean, the, the normal, the right thing to do is to help people who come into your community, but you need assistance with that. With all the redevelopment going on, urban revitalization, some might call it gentrification, a lot of economic development activity in Newark. To what degree with all this economic development and money coming into Newark, is it making Newark less affordable for those who do not have the means to stay in the city they love? Yeah, it, 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 it will. I mean, at, you know, just scientifically, you know, uh, based on, uh, you know, how capitalism works and supply and demand, you know, the prices are going to go up as the cost of living increases, as the value of property increases, your taxes increase. And so that's trickled down to, you know, renters, people who have priced out of New York City can come into Newark and pay a lesser rent, which is more than what everybody else is paying. It's, it's, it's natural progression of the way things happen. So what you have to do as a local a mayor, local elected official, you have to mitigate these things by putting in opportunities for affordability, affordable housing, sustaining the, the housing that you have, put in things to keep rent stabilized uh, in community and create more home ownership uh, at the same time, which takes a lot of work. And you can do that, and we have doing that and are doing that. But you, you are competing with the rate, the speed of the way these things are happening. You have to build these things at a commensurate speed, right? Or else you're going to fall behind. I'm sorry, Mr. Mayor. There are market forces that are driving right. up those costs. Absolutely. And so you have to mitigate those market forces by creating other kinds of opportunity for people as quick as that's happening. And the thing that this allows that often is the, the amount of investment that you have in affordability versus the amount of investment you have in market rate uh, kind of stuff, which means you need state and federal subsidy and support Around this, uh, around this affordability piece, that's not all, all the times there uh, as fast as you need it to be. Mr. Mayor, let's talk a little bit about, it's not just energy because there's more to it uh, than, than the simple question of energy. You are opposed to a new power plant. Um, what power plant are we talking about? And why is this power plant, as you see it, so detrimental to the citizens of Newark? What power plant are we talking about? Well, you know, th this is not the first. There's been many. The the, right. the the problem is Newark is a overburdened community, right? Uh, we are one of the Justice 40 communities that the federal government talks about that have been unduly affected by environmental injustice over years, That's partly right. because we're, we're an industrial city. And so we have all the industrialization and everything that comes with that, the air, the pollution of the air, the the, the pollution of water. So when people talk about, oh, Newark has made the list of one of the dirtiest cities, they think they're just talking about garbage, but that's not what people are talking about. They also talk, they talk about air pollution. It's about the pollution in the Passaic, which which has been done by these corporations that come here 
and dispose of waste in our waterways, who our air, while kids are uh, have more uh, higher asthma rates than anybody else in the state or comparable to other people in the country, or why the heat index in Newark is 10 degrees higher than other municipalities around the country. And so all of those things we have to weigh in, which why we, why we have a cumulative in, uh, impact in, uh, ordinance in Newark, while the state also has a cumulative impact ordinance, meaning all of the cumulative kind of things that have taken place in the city to add something onto that increases the burden. That's really what we're talking about, that we don't want to further increase the burden the health burden of our residents without having any kind of help or mitigation. Question. There is a lot of banning of books going on, at least debating about that. Some of your dad, who we were honored to remember in our series, Remember Them, uh, Amiri Baraka, an extraordinarily important figure in American history as, as a poet, as a writer, as a social activist. There are efforts to ban some of his books. As it relates to book banning, what's your greatest concern? Well, you you take away uh, young people and everybody's opportunity to learn not just about history, but to take in ideas, right, and figure out what 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 these ideas are and and compare them to one another and make decisions about what you believe and what you don't believe. You can't just erase history or erase ideas because you disagree with them, right? You have to allow all of these things to blossom, and then you contend with the ideas. And that's what intelligent people do. And that's what academia is for, to contend with ideas and to debate, because at the center of democracy is debate. If, if you can't have debate, then you can't have democracy. Civil, meaningful, substantive debate and discussion. Mayor Roz Baraka from the great city of Newark, Brick City. I want to thank you for joining us. Uh, Mayor, thank you so much. Thank you. You got it. Stay with us. We'll be right back. To watch more Think Tank with Steve Adubato, find us online and follow us on social media. We're now joined by State Senator Michael Testa of the 1st Legislative District. Senator, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me again, Steve. Appreciate it. You got it. Senator, we had a conversation recently where you, we talked about a whole range of issues, and you had, said you had a real concern about governor—we're taping this in the middle of April— the budget legally, constitutionally has to be established by the last day of June, or there's no money to spend, apparently. Um, I do remember that as a former state legislator a long time ago, the government shuts down. Question, what is the biggest concern you have about the governor's proposed state budget? Honestly, it's the, the size of the budget itself. We're at over $53 billion now proposed. That's 50 percent larger than Governor Murphy's first budget. And we have to keep in mind that Governor Christie's last budget was $36 billion. We're now at $53 billion. That's larger than most countries, most developed countries across the globe. We, at some point, the state of New Jersey is going to have to tighten its belt on some of the superfluous spending that we engage in. And the federal funding and COVID-related challenges don't influence your thinking on this at all in terms of this increase in the budget? No. And in, in fact, look, I was the lead attorney in suing the governor regarding the proposed $9.8 billion borrowing that turned into $4.3 billion of borrowing that we deemed was unnecessary because, unfortunately, the state's treasurer, their projections were totally off as to what revenues would be realized by the state of New Jersey. 
And, and that's a real problem. And right now we're operating at a $10 billion surplus as well. You got one cut? I'm sorry for interrupting, Senator. Do you have one cut, one piece of fat in the budget that you'd say, you know what, let's not spend that? I mean, one specific piece that I could use is the $12 million French Museum in Jersey City. I'm just perplexed by that when, you know, certain schools in my district are begging for, you know, $500,000. And it's really affecting their ability to operate and offer extracurricular activities. But somehow we have enough money in the budget for a $12 million French museum in Jersey City. And I, I certainly have nothing against the French. They're a wonderful <laughs> culture. But I just don't understand the need for that at this point in time when we should really be making sure our children, especially as they're coming, still coming out of that COVID-19 cloud with learning loss and socialization loss, we should be making sure that our schools are at least fully funded to the best of our ability. Quick follow-up on this, Senator. In the previous conversation we had, you talked about real concerns you had about sex education programming. You mentioned an interview, excuse me, we actually did an interview with your colleague, Senator Holly Shapizian, which she talked about some of that curriculum as well. Please look at our website, find the interview with Senator Shapizian. But I want to be clear, <clears throat> you have said publicly, and you told our producers, you are not in favor of banning any books. I am not in favor of book banning. That's, that's I, I find that to be wholly un-American. Maybe it's because, you know, I, I read too many books as, as, as a youngster. And I remember the book Fahrenheit 451, which was all about, you know, burning of books. And I think some of the books that have controversies on, you know, on both sides of the aisle, look, there are some, some great books, you know, Tom Sawyer, uh, you think of, and there are certainly some, you know, horrific language contained in those books. But that's part of our American history. It's a dark part of our American history where words were used much more often than they should have been, or if at all. But that is part of our history, and those books should not be banned by, by any stretch of the imagination when they are appropriate and age-appropriate. Um, quick follow-up on this. Um, curriculum having to do with race and race relations, biggest concern you have about it as it relates to public school education, because I believe you have expressed some concerns. I have expressed concerns about critical race theory. I, I don't think that that is, you know, valid science. I don't believe that, you know, it's helping race relations in any way. Look, where I went to public school in Vineland, in Vineland you know, which is a very diverse town. I went to junior high school and high, and high school at a public high school. Vineland, Vineland Senior High School is where I graduated from in 1994. You know, we knew as a population how to get along. I wasn't feeling guilty because of my background. And, you know, I, I also think it critical race theory doesn't take into account even people like myself. You know, my mother is a first generation Polish Jew whose parents survived the Holocaust. My grandfather, who ultimately became the mayor of the city of Vineland, didn't speak English until first grade. Came you know, from Italy? Well, his family did. He was actually born here, but they didn't speak English in his house, you know, because they, they spoke Italian. And, you know, I don't think that critical race theory really takes that into account. And I just have a real issue with that. I think there are many better ways to get along between all of the races. Look, Cumberland County, where I'm from, is one of the most diverse counties in the state of New Jersey. And I can tell you that we get along very well here across populations. And I think that critical race theory is there to make children, you know, feel guilty for being one race and feeling like they've been behind an eight ball or starting behind the starting line if they are another race. And I don't think Real that's quick, fair. I'll, I'll get off the center, but there's a whole range of folks who believe that not teaching in this fashion 
denies a critically important and negative part of our American history as it relates to how African-Americans have been treated. You say what to that? I think that we should teach actual history as to what has happened. And there has been an awful a lot of history that we should highlight that is a black eye on American history. There is no doubt about it that we, we have a lot of warts as Americans. Our American history is riddled, riddled with them. But guess what? We have to be able to recognize those horrific mistakes, which certainly existed my family's, uh, you know, coming here by a century or, or more. And I, and I think we have to recognize those mistakes and do better. That's what we have to do, but we shouldn't be demonizing anybody. Real, real quick on this. Um, we have a series called Reimagine Child Care that looks at the need for affordable, accessible, quality child care. Many believe that it's a partisan issue. Many others believe it has nothing to do with partisanship. We've had many of your colleagues come on and talk about this, including Senator Shapizi, who you mentioned. Your view of the importance of the government playing a key role in helping to provide affordable, accessible, quality child care is? Look, I mean, especially when you deal with single mothers, they need to be able to have access to child care. Otherwise, they are going to be jailed, you know, by their home life and taking care That's of right. a very small child. There is no doubt about that. So I think of the multitude of single mothers that exist in my district. They need access to health care so that they can better themselves via employment and better themselves via further education to be able to obtain better employment, which will only better their lifestyle and give their child or children a better chance and a start in life. I cannot thank you enough. And we look forward to having you back on to have not just a civil conversation, but a, an important and substantive one as well. Thank you, Senator Michael Testa from the first legislative district. Thank you, Senator. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. You got it. Stay with us. We'll be right back. To watch more Think Tank with Steve Adubato, find us online and follow us on social media. We're now joined by Sandana Jones, Executive Director of a great organization, Unified Valesburg Services Organization. Sandana, good to see you. Great to see you, Steve. Thanks so much for having me on. Our pleasure. We'll put up the website for Unified Valesburg uh, as you talk about what the organization does and the impact you have. Great. First, Steve, I do have to tell you that it's a bit fortuitous that we're even talking about early childhood education this morning because my sister was one of the inaugural out-of-bottle scholars when the Ready program was in existence. And I have to tell you that overall experience was just transformative for her in her longer-term educational journey. So my family knows all too well how important those formative years are and how it kind of acts as a building block to everything else. So I want to thank you and your family for that, first of all. Let me, let me just put that in perspective uh, for those who don't know. My, my late grandmother, Mildred Adubato, um, there was a scholarship fund that was set up and the dollars came from philanthropist Ray Chambers, sort of boys and girls clubs of Newark, where I was uh, raised in. And my grandfather, my late grandfather, was the first executive director of the Newark Boys Club at the time. So I appreciate the reference to the Adubato Scholars and uh, thank you for that. Uh, pick it up, talk about Unified Valesburg. Sure. Uh, first of all, I'm relatively new. I've been there for four years in the leadership, but um, it's a 50-year-old organization. We just celebrated 50 years. Um, it started out with a group of uh, residents and uh, faith leaders who were really responding years, a few years after the, the Newark Rebellion. So it was established to really stabilize the community. Um, so primarily right now, the bulk of our programming is early childhood education. We have two daycare centers, two preschools, but you know, over the years, we've done affordable housing development. 
Um, there's neighborhood planning, community organizing. Um, we've helped small business in, in their development. There's after-school programming. So a host of, um, a number of services that we provide. And, and more recently, just before the pandemic hit, we partnered with an agency. So now uh, a good portion of what we do is food distribution. So it's a collection of services that we provide. Let's talk about early childhood slash um, child care. Our initiative, Reimagine Child Care, the website will come up. What would you say, Ms. Jones, the most significant negative impact of the pandemic has been as it relates to early childhood education slash child care? Now, we know that there was there were multiple negative impacts, you know, across the board. But I will tell you, with regard to the preschool age and daycare age, it was definitely um, pretty dramatic. Um, obviously, there's been learning loss, um, the social, the lack of social interaction. Um, and that was evident in so many different areas. Uh, even when we did hybrid programming and there was a virtual option, for example, um, and that allowed you know families to get back to work and so forth. But if you had a grandparent there trying to assist um, the student and their you know English was very limited or non-existent, there was no way they could support that student even with a virtual option being made available to them. So um, the impact on our youngest learners um, was pretty profound. Do you sense, Ms. Jones, is there any closer to acknowledging, recognizing, and respecting? the role of child care professionals and paying them accordingly? Respectfully, I would say not yet. Um, there's a coalition of us who continue to advocate on an ongoing basis. And those of us who are preschool providers, I mean, the yeah, preschool age providers, um, we're getting closer to parity with regard to those who um, are in the local school district. However, when it comes to infant toddler programming, um, those dollars are not yet uh, sufficient to provide um, what I believe would be more meaningful compensation. And obviously, compensation is a huge part of why they do the job. They're passionate about the children, um, but they have families as well to and need the livelihood. And um, the the compensation where it is now definitely impacts staff morale for sure. So it is an ongoing effort as far as um, the leadership of my agency and, and across all providers to do a whole host of things to try to you know enhance staff morale because we know right now, as far as the dollars are concerned, we can't put them where they should be, but we think they should be on the pay scale. Help people understand what that means when you don't pay childcare professionals enough. Staff morale is where it's at, um, not where it needs to be. Help folks understand what that really means in terms of childcare for our children that's affordable, First accessible, and, and quality childcare. So we are now in March of a school year. We're taping this and at the end of March uh, 2023. Go ahead. Right. So, so, so my thing is, um, in both the preschool area and the infantile area, we are we still have staff vacancies. I know across the board labor is is in flux, but it, as far as education is concerned, um, there has been a profound impact. Um, so we're relying on one side substitutes, and on the other side, we're relying on temp agencies until we're actually able to secure the the educators that we need. And the fact is, what we're offering as far as the hourly compensation is difficult for people to even um, say yes, even if they have the desire to work for us, it's, it's kind of challenging to accept um, the pay scale that we currently have, even though they might enjoy the agency and so forth. Where let you go. Why did you get into this work? My family has always been involved in neighborhood revitalization, so this is kind of in my blood. <laughs> hmm. Where'd you grow up? In Newark, West Ward. West Ward. Yes. Uh, the late, great 
uh, Senator Ron Rice, who we'll be honoring and recognizing on our series. Remember yes. them, who has served the West Ward well, not just in the Senate, but in the City Council, representing the West Ward community uh, as a South Ward Councilman. You just brought that to mind when, when you Absolutely. mentioned. Absolutely. And um, we just named our building Ward. after him. Yeah. Your name after? Is that right? Yeah, we named our administrative building. That's where he had his um, Senate office for a number of decades. So we um, last month named it after him. So trust me, we are deeply indebted to him. Sandana Jones, I want to thank you so much. Uh, Valesburg is better off, the community is better off of the work because of the work of you and your colleagues at Uni excuse me, United, Unified Valesburg Services Organization. Thank you so much, Ms. Jones. We appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. You guys. See you next time, everyone. Think Tank with Steve Adubato has been a production of the Caucus Educational Corporation. Funding has been provided by Kane University, PSEG Foundation, Newark Board of Education, the Northward Center, the Healthcare Foundation of New Jersey, Choose New Jersey, the Terrell Fund, supporting Reimagine Child Care, RWJ Barnabas Health, Let's Be Healthy Together, PSENG. And by these public-spirited organizations, individuals, and associations committed to informing New Jersey citizens about the important issues facing the Garden State. And by Employers Association of New Jersey. Promotional support provided by NJ.com. And by New Jersey Globe. Hi, my name is Alma Saracia at Malcolm X Shabazz High School in Newark. I completed the FAFSA because it's a graduation requirement and to assist me with paying my college tuition. Last year, Newark students earned more than $77 million in scholarships and financial aid. Don't miss out. See your school counselor today. Let's go to work, class of 2023. Complete the FAFSA or NJAFAA. Hi, I'm Ira Robbins. At Valley, we believe in helping our local neighborhoods and improving the lives of everyone we serve. We work hard every day to make a difference for our employees, clients, and communities. That's why we're proud to support the programming produced by the Caucus Educational Corporation.